0: section thirty five of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter fifteen famine forces peel's hand part two quain dexere chaos apparently chaos had come again lord john russell was sent for from edinburgh his letter had without any such purpose on his part, written him up as the man to take Sir Robert Peel's place. Lord John Russell came to London and did his best to cope with the many difficulties of the situation. His party was not very strong in the country, and they had not a majority in the House of Commons. He very naturally endeavoured to obtain from Peel a pledge that he would support the immediate and complete repeal of the Corn Laws. Peel, writing to the Queen, humbly expresses his regret that he does not feel it to be consistent with his duty to enter upon the consideration of this important question in Parliament, fettered by a previous engagement of the nature of that required of him. The position of Lord John Russell was awkward. He had been forced into it because one or two of Sir Robert Peel's colleagues would not consent to adopt the policy of their chief but the very fact of so stubborn an opposition from a man of Lord Stanley's influence showed clearly enough that the passing of the free-trade measures was not to be effected without stern resistance from the country party. The whole risk and burden had seemingly been thrown on Lord John Russell, and now Sir Robert Peel would not even pledge himself to unconditional support of the very policy which was understood to be his own. Lord John Russell showed even then his characteristic courage. He resolved to form a ministry without a parliamentary majority. He was not, however, fated to try the ordeal. Lord Grey, who was, a few months before, Lord Howick, and who had just succeeded to the title of his father, the stately Charles Earl Grey, the pupil of Fox and chief of the Cabinet, which passed the Reform Bill and abolished slavery. Lord Grey, felt a strong objection to the foreign policy of lord palmerston and these two could not get on in one ministry as it was part of lord john russell's plan that they should do lord grey also was strongly of opinion that a seat in the cabinet ought to be offered to mr cobden but other great whigs could not bring themselves to any larger sacrifice to justice and common sense than a suggestion that the office of vice-president of the Board of Trade should be tendered to the leader of the free-trade movement. Mr. Macaulay describes the events in a letter to a constituent in Edinburgh. All our plans were frustrated by Lord Grey, who objected to Lord Palmerston being Foreign Secretary. I hope that the public interests will not suffer. Sir Robert Peel must now undertake the settlement of the question. It is certain that he can settle it, it is by no means certain that we could have done so for we shall to a man support him and a large proportion of those who are now in office would have refused to support us one passage in macaulay's letter will be read with peculiar interest from the first he says i told lord john russell that i stipulated for one thing only total and immediate repeal of the corn laws that my objections to gradual abolition were insurmountable but that if he declared for total and immediate repeal, I would be, as to all other matters, absolutely in his hands, that I would take any office or no office, just as suited him best, and that he should never be disturbed by any personal pretensions or jealousies on my part. No one can doubt Macaulay's sincerity and singleness of purpose, But it is surprising to note the change that the agitation of little more than two years has made in his opinions on the subject of a policy of immediate and unconditional abolition. In February 1843, he was pointing out to the electors of Edinburgh the unwisdom of refusing a compromise, and in December 1845, he is writing to Edinburgh to say that the one only thing for which he must stipulate was total and immediate repeal. The Anti-Corn Law League might well be satisfied with the propagandist work they had done. The League itself looked on very composedly during these little altercations and embarrassments of parties. They knew well enough now that let who would take power, he must carry out their policy. At a meeting of the League, which was held in Covent Garden Theatre on the 17th of this memorable month, and while the negotiations were still going on, Mr. Cobden declared that he and his friends had not striven to keep one party in or another party out of office. We have worked with but one principle and one object in view, and if we maintain that principle for but six months more, we shall attain to that state which I have so long and so anxiously desired, when the League shall be dissolved into its primitive elements by the triumph of its principles lord john russell found it impossible to form a ministry he signified his failure to the queen probably having done the best he could he was not particularly distressed to find that his efforts were ineffectual the queen had to send for sir robert peel to windsor and tell him that she must require him to withdraw his resignation and to remain in her service sir robert of course could only comply the Queen offered to give him some time to enter into communication with his colleagues, but Sir Robert very wisely thought that he could speak with much greater authority if he were to invite them to support him in an effort on which he was determined, and which he had positively undertaken to make. He therefore returned from Windsor on the evening of December 20th, having resumed all the functions of First Minister of the Crown the duke of buckley withdrew his opposition to the policy which peel was now to carry out but lord stanley remained firm the place of the latter was taken as secretary of state for the colonies by mr gladstone who however curiously enough remained without a seat in parliament during the eventful session that was now to come mr gladstone had sat for the borough of newark but that borough being under the influence of the duke of newcastle who had withdrawn his support from the ministry He did not invite re-election, but remained without a seat in the House of Commons for some months. Sir Robert Peel, then, to use his own words in a letter to the Princess de Liefen, resumed power, with greater means of rendering public service than I should have had if I had not relinquished it. He felt, he said, like a man restored to life after his funeral service had been preached. Parliament was summoned to meet in January. In the meantime, it was easily seen how the protectionists and the Tories of the extreme order generally would regard the proposals of Sir Robert Peel. Protectionist meetings were held in various parts of the country, and they were all but unanimous in condemning by anticipation the policy of the restored premier. Resolutions were passed at many of these meetings expressing an equal disbelief in the Prime Minister and in the famine the utmost indignation was expressed at the idea of there being any famine in prospect which could cause any departure from the principles which secured to the farmers a certain fixed price for their grain, or at least prevented the price from falling below what they considered a paying amount. Not less absurd than the protestations that there would be no famine were some of the remedies which were suggested for it if it should insist on coming on. The Duke of Norfolk of that time made himself particularly conspicuous by a beneficent suggestion which he offered to a distressed population. He went about recommending a curry powder of his own device as a charm against hunger. Parliament met. The opening day was January 22, 1846 the queen in person opened the session and the speech from the throne said a good deal about the condition of ireland and the failure of the potato crop the speech contained one significant sentence i have had her majesty was made to say great satisfaction in giving my assent to the measures which you have presented to me from time to time calculated to extend commerce and to stimulate domestic skill and industry by the repeal of prohibitive and the relaxation of protective duties i recommend you to take into your early consideration whether the principle on which you have acted may not with advantage be yet more extensively applied before the address in reply to the speech from the throne was moved sir robert peel gave notice of the intention of the government on the earliest possible day to submit to the consideration of the house measures connected with the commercial and financial affairs of the country there are few scenes more animated and exciting than that presented by the house of commons on some night when a great debate is expected or when some momentous announcement is to be made a common thrill seems to tremble all through the assembly as a breath of wind runs across the sea the house appears for a moment to be one body pervaded by one expectation the ministerial benches the front benches of opposition are occupied by the men of political renown and of historic name the benches everywhere else are crowded to their utmost capacity members who cannot get seats on such an occasion a goodly number stand below the bar or have to dispose themselves along the side galleries the celebrities are not confined to the treasury benches or those of the leaders of opposition here and there among the independent members and below the gangway on both sides are seen men of influence and renown at the opening of parliament in eighteen forty six this was especially to be observed the rising fame of the free-trade leaders made them almost like a third great party in the house of commons the strangers gallery the speakers gallery on such a night are crowded to excess the eye surveys the whole house and sees no vacant place In the very hum of conversation that runs along the benches there is a tone of profound anxiety. The minister, who has to face that house and make the announcement for which all are waiting in a most feverish anxiety, is a man to be envied by the ambitious. This time there was a curiosity about everything. What was the minister about to announce? When and in what fashion would he announce it? Would the Whig leaders speak before the ministerial announcement? would the free traders? What voice would first hint to the expectant commons the course which political events were destined to take? The moving of an address to the throne is always a formal piece of business. It would be hardly possible for Cicero or Burke to be very interesting when performing such a task. On the other hand, it is an excellent chance for a young beginner. He finds the house in a sort of contemptuously indulgent mood, prepared to welcome the slightest evidence of any capacity of speech above the dullest mediocrity he can hardly say anything absurd or offensive unless he goes absolutely out of his way to make a fool of himself and on the other hand he can easily say his little nothings in a graceful way and receive grateful applause accordingly from an assembly which counts on being bored and feels doubly indebted to the speaker who is even in the slightest degree an agreeable disappointment on this particular occasion however the duty of the proposer and seconder of the address was made specially trying by the fact that they had to interfere with merely formal utterances between an eager house and an exciting announcement a certain piquancy was lent however to the performance of the duty by the fact which the speeches made evident beyond the possibility of mistake that the proposer of the address knew quite well what the government was about to do and that the seconder knew nothing whatever now the formal task is done the address has been moved and seconded the speaker puts the question that the address be adopted now is the time for debate if debate there is to be on such occasions there is always some discussion, but it is commonly as mere a piece of formality as the address itself. It is understood that the leader of opposition will say something meaning next to nothing, that two or three men will grumble vaguely at the ministry, that the leader of the house will reply, and then the affair is all over. But on this occasion it was certain that some momentous announcement would have to be made, and the question was when it would come perhaps no one expected exactly what did happen nothing can be more unusual than for the leader of the house to open the debate on such an occasion and sir robert peel was usually somewhat of a formalist who kept to the regular ways in all that pertained to the business of the house no eyes of expectation were turned therefore to the ministerial bench at the moment after the formal putting of the question by the speaker it was rather expected that lord john russell or perhaps mr cobden would rise but a surprised murmur running through all parts of the house soon told those who could not see the treasury bench that something unusual had happened and in a moment the voice of the prime minister was heard that marvellous voice of which lord beaconsfield says that it had not in his time any equal in the house unless we accept the thrilling tones of o'connell and it was known that the great explanation was coming at once. The explanation, even now, however, was somewhat deferred. The Prime Minister showed a deliberate intention, it might have been thought, not to come to the point at once. He went into long and laboured explanations of the manner in which his mind had been brought into a change on the subject of free trade and protection, and he gave exhaustive calculations, to show that the reduction of duty was constantly followed by expansion of the revenue and even a maintenance of high prices. The duties on glass, the duties on flax, the prices of salt pork and domestic lard, the contract price of salt beef for the navy, these and many other such topics were discussed at great length, and with elaborate fullness of detail in the hearing of an eager house, anxious only, for that night, to know whether or not the minister meant to introduce the principle of free trade. Peel, however, made it clear enough that he had become a complete convert to the doctrines of the Manchester School, and that, in his opinion, the time had come when that protection which he had taken office to maintain must forever be abandoned. One sentence at the close of his speech was made the occasion of much-laboured criticism and some severe accusation it was that in which peel declared that he found it no easy task to ensure the harmonious and united action of an ancient monarchy a proud aristocracy and a reformed house of commons the explanation was over the house of commons was left rather to infer than to understand what the government proposed to do lord john russell entered into some personal explanations relating to his endeavour to form a ministry and the causes of its failure these have not much interest for a later time it might have seemed that the work of the night was done it was evident that the ministerial policy could not be discussed then for in fact it had not been announced the house knew that the prime minister was a convert to the principles of free trade but that was all that any one could be said to know except those who were in the secrets of the cabinet There appeared nothing for it but to wait until the time should come for the formal announcement and the full discussion of the government measures. Suddenly, however, a new and striking figure intervened in the languishing debate and filled the House of Commons with a fresh life. There is not often to be found in our parliamentary history an example like this of a sudden turn given to a whole career by a timely speech the member who rose to comment on the explanation of sir robert peel had been for many years in the house of commons this was his tenth season he had spoken often in each session he had made many bold attempts to win a name in parliament and hitherto his political career had been simply a failure from the hour when he spoke this speech it was one long unbroken brilliant success End of section 35.